church, if you'll open your Bibles to the book of Romans, chapter 1, as we continue on. We got off to a tremendous start last week, uh, seeing the, the depth and the, the profundity, yet the uh, succinct nature that we see just in those first four verses of Romans, chapter 1, alone. This morning, we turn our attention and we continue to verses 5 through 7. And in particular this morning, what takes center stage is something that will take center stage throughout the rest of the book of Romans, and that is grace. Grace, uh, if I believe I remember seeing it this week correctly, uh, 155 times in the New Testament is grace referenced to, and a hundred of those are in Romans. And so we see here, grace is one of those things that people are quick to demand, but slow to give. And I think we've all experienced that in our own lives, whether we have been the ones needing and begging for grace or whether we have been the ones that needed to give grace and to show grace where we've been shown. And by people, again, I mean us. So people are quick to demand. That's what I said. But by people, I mean us. Don't be tempted to only think of others when it comes to the Bible's correction and reproof. That can often be a temptation of ours as we hear something and we think, yes, so-and-so, that applies directly to them. When you think so-and-so, think this so-and-so, right? Okay, so grace is something that everyone wants to receive, but our flesh fights tooth and nail not to extend it. Because of our own sense of justice, we have this innate sense of justice within us that our flesh wants to get over. It wants to get on top. It wants to to come out on the winning end of whatever discrepancy. If someone has has done you wrong, it wants to say, no, they need to be wronged back so that you can be the one on top. So what we're going to see when it comes to grace is also this question of what defines the people of God? What defines the people of God? The answer to this question becomes radically changed in the gospel. And the thing which radically transforms the definition of the people of God is the grace of God the Father in the face of Jesus Christ. And we're going to see that this morning. I'm going to read for us verses 1 through 7. Again, our text for this morning is verses 5 through 7. So I'll ask you to stand in honor of the reading of God's Word once again as you are able. If you do not have a Bible, you should find one in the pew in front of you. And we're in Romans chapter 1. We're going to read verses 1 through 7. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was descended from David, according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power, according to the Spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom we have received grace in apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. 
to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the word of God. Let's pray, church. God, as we come before you this morning, I pray that you would overwhelm us with the truth of your transformative grace that you have laid upon us, that you have freely given to us. And God, I pray that that reality would help us see how that defines us as your people, as your church, and that, that those, those truths that they would have far-reaching implications in our obedience, which comes from our faith. And God, that that would result in increasingly more and more people whom you are calling to yourself, coming to a realization of your grace through repentance and confession of faith. God, I pray that you would guard me in this time. Let me not be an obstacle to your word, but rather help me to shine light on the truth of your word. Lord, guard me from error. I pray that this time would be for the edification of your church and the glorification of your name. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated, church. So, Again, last week, looking at verses 1 through 4 in that introductory statement, Paul has established a strong sense of identity that is forged through the gospel. An identity, what it means to be the self. What, is it, what do I see my identity as? Is who I want people to see me as, who I see myself as. What do we mean by a strong sense of identity forged through the gospel? Well, we see that in his introductory statement, he has been addressing how the gospel has changed him. That in ascribing himself as a set-apart servant of Christ Jesus, he is not simply describing his hobbies. He's not just simply describing something that he just kind of partakes in and dabbles in from time to time. He wants to be defined by these things, by these terms, servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. These are the things that guide his life and his very being. He's describing that this is who Christ has made him to be at the very core of his being, Why? Because we have been set apart for this gospel, which was promised long ago, according to God's self-revelatory word, the scriptures, concerning his son, who's descended from David, according to the flesh. This providentially promised gospel has who as its main concern and focus? His co-eternal, pre-existent Son, who has descended from David according to the flesh and declared to be the Son of God in power by His resurrection from the dead. This is our introduction now into verse 5, which I've heard described as the perfect summation statement for the entire book of Romans. Verse 5 itself. 
And so we're going to spend quite a bit of time just in verse 5 alone this morning, but we'll see how that informs verses 6 and 7. So we look there at verse 5 again, and we begin verse 5 with this statement, through whom? That's why it's important for us to remind ourselves of what we read in verses 1 through 4. We stopped in the middle of a sentence last week. And so we need to remind ourselves, who is this whom? Jesus Christ, our Lord, this one who is concerning his son, who's the son of God, preexistent, co-eternal, descended from David. So according to God's providential working in the scriptures, declared to be the son of God in power, according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. This is the whom. So through whom what? Through whom we have received grace. We'll pause right there. Grace is by nature something that is not earned or merited. That is by definition what grace is. Grace is to give or be given something that is not deserved. That's grace. To, be, to give or be given something that is not deserved. Mercy is the act of withholding a punishment that is justly deserved. So it's the, the two differences there between grace and mercy. And we see here we have received Grace through Jesus Christ, the Son, descended from David according to the flesh, resurrected in power according to the Holy Spirit. So in this gospel, through Christ Jesus, the one who has been declared as the Son of God in power, we are recipients of grace. Now, just even in looking, just at simply Paul's explanation of the gospel there in verses Two through four, where do we see ourselves as her having merited anything in the gospel? Who accomplished everything? Who did all the work in making and forging the gospel, the good news? Christ. And yet it is through him that we receive. Grace. In this gospel, we have received an immense grace beyond measure. And that grace has poured forth from one source. The act which opened the floodgate of grace was a once for all act. The source of the immense grace we have received is Christ. Providentially, the act which opened the floodgate of grace was performed by the very source. Christ's death on the cross. But what I want us to see this morning is that this grace is not inactive. This grace is not something that we just receive only to then continue in our former manner of life. So this is what I mean by this grace is not inactive. It's obviously not been inactive in Christ. That he's the one who's done all the work. So if anybody's been inactive to this point, it's us. But what this grace then does when we receive it is not inactive. This grace is not something that we just receive and continue our former manner of life. This grace is transformative. This grace transforms us into what? Well, how did Paul describe himself? In the introduction, a servant of Christ Jesus. We spent much time on that last week. Called to be an apostle. Set apart 
for the gospel of God. This grace is transformative in that it transforms us into servants of Christ Jesus who are set apart for the gospel. This grace transforms us individually into a whole new person. And this grace transforms us corporately into a new people. So in Christ Jesus, we have received transformative grace. Unfortunately, grace is too often misconstrued. And that's why I want to make this point of this grace being transformative. Because too often, grace is misconstrued and misapplied as affirmation. So understand, church, that in Christ, we have been shown an overabundance of grace in our salvation. But that grace that we were shown in salvation was not an affirmation of who we were in our sinfulness, but rather an affirmation of God's love and who he created us and called us to be. So I want to give us some subpoints here that I, I could not fit on your outline this morning. So grace does not affirm sin, but exposes it for the purpose of sanctification. That's what we're seeing here in this transformative, this idea of transformative grace. See, there's grace aplenty for our continued faults on the other side of coming to know Christ. We know from experience the difficulties that come with battling the flesh on the other side of submitting to Christ in salvation. But we also know the grace that we are constantly indebted to daily. Oh, to grace, how great a debtor, daily I'm constrained to be. But the grace that we are shown in our salvation and the grace that we are being shown in our sanctification are not for the purpose of us reveling in the flesh, but for the purpose of us killing the flesh. So notice the difference there, that grace is not something like, oh, I can sin because I have grace. Rather, Thank you, Lord, for your grace. Help me to kill this sin within me. We read this in 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul, speaking on his own testimony of how this grace has transformed him, because don't, don't misinterpret or, or, or look over and forget where Paul came from to the point where he could call himself a servant of Christ, a persecutor of the church, active, murderous persecutor of the church, who now calls himself a servant of Christ Jesus, set apart for the gospel of God. What could do that? Transformative grace. And this is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. Speaking of himself, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle. And we'll break that apostleship down here in just a little bit as we move on in verse 5. Because I persecuted the church of God. That's verse 9, 1 Corinthians 15. Verse 10. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. So by God's grace, I am what I am now. What I have now become. I was unworthy because I persecuted the church. 
but by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. So even in our salvation, as we are toiling and seeking to work to continue to be sanctified, it's not even us that is at work. Paul even admits that of himself. I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then as I or they, so we preach and so you believed. So this is also why we must make sure that in our sharing the gospel, in our boasting of the gospel and making known the grace of God, that we do not make a caricature of grace. What do I mean by that? What a, you know, those caricature drawings, you know, often emphasize, overemphasize just certain little things about the self. If somebody's got, you know, bigger ears than the ears on the character drawing will be like an elephant-sized ears, right? Like that's the idea of a character drawing. It overemphasizes things that aren't as bad as they seem on the drawing, right? So when we share the gospel with come as you are, that has become the overemphasis. That has become the caricature of the modern transformed gospel is that it, it's come as you are and it stops there. And when we share the gospel with come as you are and we don't continue past that, we make grace to be the single characteristic of God and we negate the need for the cross. And in fact, we bury the cross in the background of the gospel and we lose the gospel altogether. In the life, death, and resurrection of Christ, we have been shown a grace greater than all of our sin, which transforms us anew. And here's the second subpoint I want to give you to that, is that grace is what shapes us as a people. By grace, we are brought to faith. Through faith, we continue to receive an outpouring of grace. If all mankind are sinful and have fallen short of the glory of God and thus earning of the just wage of death, and we are, then any whom God saves must be saved by what? Grace. And what an overwhelming thought that the one who knew us before we were even born and knew us to our core has sovereignly looked upon us in all our unworthiness and said, I love you and I want you, I want to make you right. This is the gospel of grace. That no matter who you are, Jesus loves you and wants you to be made new. It's not that come as you are and just be satisfied in that. It's come as you are, as I've said many times before, and be forever changed through repentance and confession of faith. This is what it means to be regenerate. This is what it means to be made new. If you see people that you knew from ages past, years past, Maybe you knew them growing up. Maybe you knew them when you were young. You knew them in your BC days, as it were, right? And they can't tell an abundant difference between who you are now and who you were then. 
there's a huge problem. I want you to turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. Peter here is, again, addressing a dispersed set of believers who are on the outskirts, isolated in faith, small in number. And he wants them to remember what it means to be a holy people. In other words, the people of God. What it means to be defined as the people of God. And Peter, writing to these believers, says this, starting in verse 4. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4. As you come to him, the him there is Christ, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious. This is describing the, the story leading up to the gospel. It was promised beforehand in Scripture, right, that he was the living stone. He's rejected. He came to his own. His own did not know him is what we see in John 1. Verse 5, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious. So here we're quoting from Isaiah. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. Again, referring to this promise of Christ according to the scriptures. What we saw last week in verses 1 through 4. Continuing, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So the mercy of God, the grace of God go hand in hand in the gospel. So you see, once you were out on your own, not a people, isolated away from the gospel, but now, because of what have you been brought in? It's there, but it's not there. It's, it's explicitly, implicitly being stated. It is by God's grace that he has brought you in. Chosen race. Well, who chose? God. Royal priesthood, holy nation, people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you. Now, turning our attentions back. So what we are going to see is that this transformative grace is not simply for transforming our morals. Although it does. And it should. But this transformative grace is for making us something completely different. So we're going to stick a pin there in 1 Peter. We're going to circle back to that in just a second as we continue to, to build on what we see here in Romans 1. So... Grace is not the only thing that Paul sees himself as a recipient of through his calling. 
Because we see, through whom we have received grace, again, Romans 1, 5, and apostleship. So Paul's apostleship, the very authority which he has to speak, to lead, to shepherd the church, by which everything he says is, is, is likened according to Scripture, as Peter references later on. That's, that's his authority, is his apostleship. And he likens it as something that he has also received by God's grace. Meaning what? The authority he wields is not his own. So in our salvation, we receive transformative grace. And this grace transforms us from being children of wrath like the rest of mankind to being children of light, from being dead in our trespasses and sins to being alive in Christ. And there's more. This grace that we receive equips us for service. So it is both our faith and our equipping that are totally undeserved, totally unmerited. You go back to verse 1, and there we see that this position of apostle, which was reserved for the original 11 disciples who both followed Jesus and were witnesses to the resurrected Christ. And then they added only two others, Matthias, who was on the other side is Acts 1.26, if you want to look at that, who took the place of Judas. And then Paul, who himself was a witness of the resurrected Christ, as it was that experience which brought him to faith. So here Paul is strictly speaking of himself and the other apostles. So if you hear anyone especially nowadays, claiming themselves to be an apostle, having apostolic ministry, having apostolic power and authority, question it. Doubt it. Why? Because God's word questions it, right? So here Paul is strictly speaking of himself and the other apostles. So soon he's going to draw this line for us to see how God does this in all whom he draws to himself. So that those whom God saves by his grace, he equips for his kingdom. We see this in 1 Corinthians 12. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. So, again, we have the Spirit of Holiness referenced here in Romans. That's what, what has resurrected and, and given uh, and seated Christ Jesus as our Lord through whom we have received this grace and apostleship. So notice those connections, and we continue there in 1 Corinthians 12. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Now there are ver varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. We read this in Ephesians 4 on the same thought. Ephesians 4, verses 11 through 14. And he gave, notice the connection there. This is through whom we have received 
And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers. So here he's specific, specifically referencing those who have leadership positions in the church. To equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. So the role of these who have authority, that would be like myself, right? Apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers. To equip, the role is not for them to be the only ones doing everything, that they have all this special authority, so they, what they say goes, what they do goes. No, their role is to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. And what's the purpose of this? You go down to verse 14 of Ephesians 4. So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the ways and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. You go on to another one, Hebrews 13, 20 through 21. Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus. So here we have, again, another reference to the resurrection preceding this. The great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. So each and every one of you have been equipped for service in the kingdom. You see, in our sinfulness, we use these skills, these gifts, these abilities in service to who? Ourselves. In coming to salvation by grace through faith, we see these gifts through the light of God's grace that they may be used for his glory. And that's how we see this continue here in verse 5 of Romans. Through whom we've received grace and apostleship for what? To bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among the nations. So, this is an obedience that comes from faith. As we see throughout Scripture, faith precedes obedience. That's the connection to be made here. Faith precedes obedience. And we are brought to faith by grace. And it's by grace through faith that we come to know Christ. And it is through that faith that we then walk in obedience. So obedience flows from faith. Faith precedes obedience, and then it is through that faith that we walk in obedience to God's word. We walk in obedience to his ways, and we walk in obedience to his calling and his equipping us. We've received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith. This type of obedience is not obligatory. So it's not the type of obedience in which you're like, okay, I guess I'll do it because like, I'm supposed to. I guess I'll, I'll do this because I have to. Right? We've been walking through this. We started our apologetic series on Wednesday with, with Aaron. 
The thought that, that came out of that in looking at this obedience is like, why do we not murder? And the real reason that we don't murder is because there's men like Steve Martin, right? We're going to come looking after you if you do something like that. Why do you not speed? Some of you are like, right? And the real thing is you probably do speed when there's no policemen there. So you do it because the authority is not directly watching. Well, that's the idea here is that we obey not because we have to or because we feel like it's what we're supposed to do or it's what's necessary. We obey out of an overflow of the faith that we have been brought to, of the grace that we have been shown. It's natural. It's eager. It's worshipful. This type of obedience is not for selfish gain, but freely given as an offering of praise. You see, this, uh, I want to give us a few sub points here. Our obedience is a direct indicator of our servitude. We want to call ourselves servants of Christ Jesus. And we want to see, like, okay, how, how am I actually making myself subservient to Christ? Well, in order to get that litmus test, look at the obedience. Am I walking according to his word? Am I in his word? Am I serving others? Am I making myself less than to others? How could we possibly call ourselves servants of Christ and not even know his commands, let alone follow them with heartfelt obedience? Our obedience is a direct indicator of the transforming work of God's grace within us. So remember earlier when I said that we would circle back to 1 Peter and this idea of being the people of God coming out of what we read in 1 Peter? Here's where I want to circle back to it. What was it that Moses reminded the Israelites on the plains of Moab in Deuteronomy 7? Some of you are like, what? Right? No. So Deuteronomy 7, it's right, it's being, it's a series of sermons by Moses on the plains of Moab reminding the people of the law, of the covenant. And Moses tells them in Deuteronomy 7, verses 7 through 8, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all the peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So here's what I want to see. God's people have been defined by transformative grace from the beginning. So what's, what's the change then? Because you might be remembering, I said at the beginning, that the gospel redefines what it means to be the people of God. So how does the gospel radically change what it means to be the people of God? It's that last part there of verse 5. Through whom we have received grace and apostleship. So we've been shown grace in our salvation. We've also been equipped to serve in the kingdom for the purpose of bringing about the obedience of faith, but bringing that about among who? 
for the sake of his name among all the nations. That's where the gospel radically shifts what it means to be the people of God. Because the gospel, grace has defined the people of God from the beginning. But now this grace is made known in Christ Jesus. That in Christ Jesus, it doesn't matter what family you're born into. It doesn't matter what nationality you're born into. But that his name is being magnified and glorified in the obedience of faith. The obedience that comes from faith is being multiplied among the nations. By whom? Those who've received grace and who've been equipped to serve in the kingdom. As you continue into verse 6, and this is where, again, we said, Paul's talking about his apostleship, so he's talking about himself and the other apostles, but this is where he draws that clear line that this isn't just for the apostles. This isn't just for the, the religious elite. Verse 6, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. Paul wants all those in Rome, he wants all believers who have been called according to this gospel, promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, descended from David, according to the flesh, declared to be the son of God in power, according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection. He wants all who had faith in that, who have been called according to this gospel, to know that they too are called to be servants of Christ Jesus. To make themselves subservient to Christ Jesus, the true king, not Caesar Augustus, but Christ Jesus. He wants all who've accepted and believed the gospel to be set apart for the gospel. The gospel which the Lord providentially promised and accomplished according to the scriptures. For the express purpose of his name being glorified among all the nations. And this is where I want you to see this, that the reward of our obedience is the glory of God. And see, that's, that's, that's counter to what our culture, what our, our flesh wants to think, is that when I obey, I get a reward. When I obey the speed limit, my reward is not to get a ticket, right? We want to justify ourselves. But here we see that the reward of our obedience is not owed to us. So our obedience flows from faith, a faith which was not our own, which was given to us by grace. And then, guess what? Our obedience flows through us. And who gets the reward or the, the glory of our obedience? Still not us. The reward of our obedience is the glory of God. The aim of our equipping is not to build ourselves up, to, but to bring to faith those whom God wills that God may receive the greater glory among all the nations. And we continue there to verse 7. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. Now you look at that word saints. It's used throughout the Old Testament, mainly in the Psalms, over and over again, constantly referring to the people of God. And specifically in the Psalms, obviously, it's within the context of Israel. But Paul uses it here 
And it's used in the New Testament to refer to who? The church. So that if you are in Christ and you have been brought to faith in Christ by grace, then you are the people of God. Grace to you. So notice how he wants that this defining characteristic of the people of God to be grace and grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So he wants that grace to be multiplied. And that grace to produce peace within the church. For Paul, this gospel redefines what it means to be the people of God. And the gospel redefines what it means to be the people of God in that this grace being extended so that God's name may be glorified among all the nations. Once you were not a people, now you are a people. A priesthood. So what's the new definition? We are a people who have been radically transformed by the grace of God in the face of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. For the glory of God among the nations to the praise of his glorious grace. This is what it means to be the people of God. And we're gonna see this even more explicitly as we move through how grace defines and shapes us as a people. And we're really gonna see some incredible things in chapter two next month. And uh, we're gonna see continually how grace is constantly shaping and defining us and our identity as the people of God. Let's pray. God, as we come before you, I pray that if there's anyone in here who cannot definitively say that they are counted among the people of God, children of grace, then Lord, I pray that their hearts would be overwhelmed by the grace that you have made known in Christ and that you would bring them unto salvation through repentance, bringing about faith in their hearts and then bring about obedience. For those, Lord, uh, those of us who have been brought unto salvation, for those of us who are called to be saints, called to belong to Jesus Christ, Lord, I pray that you would stir about in us a renewed appreciation and humility toward the grace that you have shown us in Christ. That that would embolden our faith and that through that faith that would flow an obedience which is worshipful, joyful, eager. Help us to walk according to your words, seeing for ourselves the beauty of what you promised beforehand through your prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning your Son, this gospel, what shapes us as your people. And then, Lord, help us to be servants of Christ Jesus set apart for this gospel that your name may be glorified among all the nations. Let me pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.